We're talking today, uh, we're going through the book of Ephesians, we've been continuing through Ephesians, and it has been a joy, I have had a blast really unpacking this. Um, I, we, when we were in student ministries uh, back, I don't know, six or seven years ago, we got to preach through Ephesians, and it, it has been so good to just keep coming back to it and keep coming back to it and really letting it soak and saturate my mind, and it has done some good things. Now, traditionally, I don't do this, but uh, I, I don't try and leave sermon introductions up to fate, but I looked at my desk this week, and there's a, there's a little box that sits on my desk. It's this box right here. It's a box of icebreaker questions. Uh, does this look familiar to any life group leaders out there? We've used this, I don't even know how many times, but fun little conversation starters, icebreakers. And so I opened the box, and here was the question that came out. What stereotype do you completely live up to? I asked my friends this question, and they had uh, not kind things to say to me, but they had uh, all sorts of ideas of what I live up to. But uh, out of curiosity, from your perspective, please be kind, is there one thing that if I'm up here that's probably going to come out of my mouth, what is the one stereotypical thing that you just know? If Stephen's up here, he's going to talk about his? Oh, yes. Oh, I'm definitely going to talk about my van. Um, I absolutely love my van, it comes out of everything I talk about. I love this thing. It, it embodies camping. It embodies uh, the off-road adventure. It involves four-wheel drive. It involves really good food, generally meat, uh, backcountry camping in the dirt. I just absolutely love this thing. And then those of you who said one of these, oh, man, that is little Daisy Grace Huggins on the left. And on the right, it's Ellie holding Daisy Grace with uh, some wild nap hair, post-nap uh, she, yep, she, uh, she doesn't let us do her hair. And then here's another one. But if, if I'm up here, I'm probably talking about my kids in my van. It just, it's what I do. You talk about what you love, and then we will get to the Jesus part. Hear me saying that. <laughs> you talk about what you love. It, it, it's, it's what we do. And today, I think in the text, Paul is actually going to essentially say, hey, guys, as the church, we have this reputation to uphold. We have this reputation that we are pushing on towards. We have this stereotype that is ideal for us to be known. The reality doesn't necessarily match the stereotype that we're hoping for. The stereotype of the American church is not as good. The stereotype of the early church could have not had the best reputation around. But Paul is going to give us overwhelming clarity on what it looks like, what he wants the church to be known for. So here's our text for today. It says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for bringing us together today to unpack it together. God, thank you for the, the message that you gave Paul to write to the church of Ephesus and to us. 
so that we can get a clear picture of who you are and what you have for us. God, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to see what you have for us today. Thank you again for what you're doing in this community, what you will continue to do. We pray this all for your glory and for our joy. Here's our big idea. God's love completely transforms us. When we've experienced the love of God, it completely transforms us from our beliefs to our behaviors. Where do I see that in the text? Here it is. It starts with therefore. Now, growing up, I was always told, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you always ask, what is it? Therefore. Thank you. When you see therefore, you always say, what is the therefore, therefore? And uh, it's kind of fun to say it so fast. What's the therefore, therefore? I don't know. Let's find out what the therefore is therefore. And so here's, here's why the therefore is therefore. We are so deeply, deeply loved by God, and we believe it. What has Paul been talking about the entire first half of this book? Let's jump into a quick review of Ephesians 1, 3 through 21. This is going to go swimmingly. It's going to go quickly because the bulk is in chapter 4, but we have to understand the context before we jump into chapter 4. We have to understand what God has already said to us through Paul in order for us to understand chapter 4 appropriately. We have to understand the belief that we have been chosen by God for a new life that is lavished in love. We broke up that first chapter into, I don't even know, five, six, seven weeks so that we didn't just skate over this idea that we are completely loved by God. He absolutely loves us. He chose us to be reconciled to him because he absolutely loves us. Chapter 2 continues on that we were dead and God completely rescued us. We were spiritually completely dead. And because God loves us, because God loves us, he gave us a new identity. He raised us to life. We were chosen by God. We are loved by God. We have been raised to life from God. And we are overwhelmingly loved and filled with the fullness of God in chapter 3. Traditionally, Paul will give you the first half of his book, whatever book he's writing, generally this is the case. The first half of the book is all about this doctrine. Look at who you are. Look at what God has done. And then he pivots to the second half of now, what do we do with it? And I think there's a reason Paul doesn't start. You heard all the list of commands as I was reading the text. There's a reason he doesn't start the book of Ephesians with, this is what you do. Walk like this. Do this. Stop lying. Start doing this. Stop doing this. There's a reason he doesn't go straight to the imperatives in churches. Uh, the, 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 the stereotype around us is that we're, oftentimes the stereotype is that we're Bible thumpers and we're just, hey, do goods. And like, you just need to stop sinning and do good things. I think this potentially is what Paul is trying to get us to see. No, no, no. It comes out of understanding who you are. It's so easy to just go straight to the imperatives, straight to the commands, and say, you need to do this, do this, do this, do better here, do more of this, stop doing this, stop sinning. But Paul wants us to be completely overwhelmed. Before I tell you what to do, know who you are. Before I start addressing behaviors, you need to understand your beliefs. Why? Because Paul understood, we talked about it last week, that your, your behaviors are transformed by your beliefs. You have to believe what Paul is telling us in order for there to be any motivation behind what comes next. Without a clear understanding of the first half, knowing how much God loves you, knowing that you were completely dead and God saved you, the rest of it 
is completely powerless. So I think that's why he spent the chunk of the book talking about how much God loves you before he gets to these imperatives. And then he starts in chapter 4 with, now that you get this, now here's a command, walk. Walk in a manner worthy to what you've been called. Walk worthy. So now we continue on. The chunk here, the, the, the thrust of what Paul's trying to get us to see is that we believe it. Even I had some, <laughs> uh, it felt slow getting through the first three chapters. It felt slow getting through the first three books, uh, three chapters of Ephesians because it was, all right, we get the idea, we get it, we get it. There's no point in moving on until we believe and grasp how much God has done before we go to what we do with it now. And this is last week's text. It says this, starting in 22, put off your old self, another command. Once we have the basis of belief, once we have the firm understanding that we have been chosen by God and loved by God and just overwhelmingly poured grace upon, that he has lavished his love and grace upon us, now that we have that understanding, put off your old self and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self the new self that was created. It's a new creation after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Is that an appropriate summary of where we've been? We are so deeply loved by God and we believe it. And it transforms how we behave. Because we are so loved by God, now what do we do? How then shall we live? Let's jump back into the text and see that we are completely transformed and we behave like it. First thing Paul's going to tell us in this text is that our words are for truth and not for lies. It says, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. What he's saying is, stop lying. Again, I, I think it's appropriate that Paul spent so much time before getting to this verse explaining why why we have to understand that God loves us, why we have to understand that we're a new creation, why we understand that we put off the old self and put on the new self. Now he gets into the nitty-gritty. He gets into the nitty-gritty. Here are some very plain, very clear, very simple tactics. Our words are for pursuing truth and sharing truth. They are not for lying. They're not for falsehood. So often, I think we promote the lies that we share, the lies that we project are actually the lies that we ourselves are believing so much more. The lies that crush cultures are the ones that people who believe them the deepest. My worth is in my paycheck. My worth is in my stature. My worth is in what I can provide. My worth is in how much I can uh, uh, just give my time away to all these different communities and the PTA and the church. And, the, and it just goes down the line, all these good things that are good to participate in. But at the end of the day, we find our value in there and we believe the lie that if I can't participate here, if I'm not doing enough, I'm not actually good enough. And so then we project that onto others. And we start lying about certain things. How much time did you spend you know, with PTA, how much time did you invest into the local school this year? How much time did you invest into church this year? How much time did you invest into this? And it turns out, oh, oh, so much more, so much more time than I can even imagine. And we just lie to cover up because that's where we find our greatest security. It's where we find our greatest value 
in whatever the lie is that we are believing about ourselves. So we believe the lies, and then we promote the lies, and it just crushes communities because it completely breaks trust. And what, at the core, is this? It's that we're not trusting that God is actually more satisfying, that we can be more satisfied in Jesus than in our identity, than in our wealth, than in our whatever comes next, than in the picturesque version of our family that we present. We have friends that, tons of friends that, who are in new parenthood stages of life, which is fun, and, and we love it. And quite a few of our friends will talk to them and, hey, how has it been going? And I, we had a pretty crazy newborn uh, with Ellie. Daisy has been a lot more simple with us. She's been really good to us. She sleeps well. She eats well. She cries when she's hungry and she goes back to bed. But Ellie was inconsolable for six months. I don't even know. It was overwhelming. And so we know the exhaustion that can come from child <laughs> living with a newborn child. And we ask our friends sometimes, how is it going? And it's good. I don't want to talk about it. Like, everything's perfect. Hey, it's all, like, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it's just, hey, what, uh, like, what's, what are your kids doing? Oh, they're, they're so advanced. They're already rolling over. They're already doing this. They're already doing this. And it's like, awesome. That's really cool. And it's, it's fun to hear those things, but at the end of the day, that's the projection that we want. I want to know that my kid is advanced. I want to know that I have this picturesque, perfect version of a family. And if that's what's valuable to me, if that's the image that I want to present, I'm going to lie to achieve whatever I need. And more power to them if their kids are already advanced and just crushing life. I love it. They're speaking it, you know, a month and a half old. Nice. <clears throat> I made that one up. Except for Daisy, she does that. <laughs> but here's, here's a quote I came across a long while ago. It says, hurt people hurt people. Hurt people, people who have been hurt, oftentimes turn and push that hurt on others. Hurt people hurt people. I think that's what Paul's getting at here in this, this verse. He's explaining, hey, there is no room. There's no room for dishonesty in the community of faith. If we want to have a society, a church culture that is actually functioning, and you can actually build trust with one another, and you can actually love and, and, and build with one another, there is no room for lying or deceit. But oftentimes, people who have been hurt the worst are the ones who are hurting others the worst. Hurt people hurt people. And at the root, it's distrust. Distrust in God's goodness, wanting to present our own image above his. But here's the basis Paul is going to give us. Why don't we lie to one another? We're on the same team. Why would we do that? We're in the same body. Here's what he says specifically. We are members one of another. If my eyes lie to my feet while I'm standing right here on the edge, that would be hilarious first, but it would be a, a huge bummer. That would be, if, I, if this was more serious, more of a serious consequence, if I'm standing on the edge of a cliff and my eyes lie to my feet or my brain lies to my legs and I start moving the wrong direction and something inside my body is lying to itself, it will be catastrophic. That's the image Paul is giving us. We're members of the same body. We're on the same team. What are you doing? Why lie to one another? I think about my, my hands. If my eyes, I'm holding my daughter, and my, my brain says, don't hold anymore. Catastrophic. It makes absolutely no sense. 
for that to be happening, unless I'm a complete psychopath, which I think Paul would say, yeah, maybe if we're abusing each other like this in these ways, maybe it's a sign of a uh, lack of health in the community. We're members one of another. We're on the same team. What are we doing? Now, it's not clear if he's talking about a specific event that happened or if he's just giving general rules, but I think for us, they apply as general rules very nicely. In order to have a thriving RCC community, it can't be found on the basis of lying, of speaking falsehood. There has to be an element of trust, a layer of speaking truth one to another because we're on the same team, on the same mission. This is how, uh, for, for any Gen, Gen Zers, or even maybe millennials, but Gen Zers over here, you might appreciate this. Um, here's, here's how I interpret what he says. I'll put, my, I'll put my clicker in here. There's a weird little clapping, talking thing that Gen Xers and millennials do, but Stop lying to each other. Guys, we're on the same team. <laughs> what are you thinking? Now, that was extremely embarrassing, so I'm going to move on from that. But <laughs> <laughs> there's emphasis there. Because this is going to found the rest of the, the paragraph that he's giving us. Guys, we're on the same team, and if we want to function well in society together, we have to understand that there's a level of trust. We cannot approach life together without Trust. Next point, our anger is righteous, not sinful. Paul says this, therefore having put away all falsehood, each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we're members. We're on the same team. He says this in 26, be angry and do not sin. Now the question here, again, this is an imperative, it's a command. So the question here is, is he commanding us to be angry? And through research and thinking and doing good theology, I'm convinced that this is actually a conditional imperative, one that on the condition, under the circumstance that you are angry, some people supply the word if. If you're angry, or when you are angry, not saying go be angry, but when you are angry, do not sin. It's one of our primary emotions, folks. When we're angry, we do not sin. It's a direct quote from Psalm 4. It says this, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, you make me dwell in safety. David, the context of this psalm is David is running from persecutors who have unrighteously attacked him. He's on impending trial. There's people who have brought accusations against him. And he's saying, I'm pretty angry. But in my anger, I'm not going to sin. Why? Because I, I'm trusting in the Lord. I will experience this emotion of anger, but appropriately balanced by trusting God to handle it. Just like lying is an expression of distrust in God. This angry, sinful anger is an expression of distrust in God. But rather, notice David puts verse 7 at an appropriate place. You've put more joy in my heart. He's balancing out his anger with joy, saying, I'm actually going to find greater joy in Jesus. That time, greater joy in Yahweh. But for us, greater joy in Jesus. Trusting what God has for my joy in the future that he has, however this shakes out, I trust him. 
My trust is in the Lord, and it is going to be full of joy, whatever comes my way. Back to stereotypes. This is from Google. I googled, what are the top five Christian stereotypes? Now, it is going to become overwhelmingly obvious that this is not from someone inside the church. Because <laughs> um, it is not, yeah, this was published uh, 2023, so a couple months back. So it's relatively up to date. Not that it, things change overwhelmingly over a few years, but number one is the only one I'm going to read out loud. You love to argue, fight, and attack. Blah. As if Paul read this list, said, guys, anger is a big thing. Anger is a big deal. How do we appropriately handle our anger? Here are some, uh, a chart, some ideas. This is not exhaustive. This is not definitive. But this is just some ideas of what righteous anger, appropriate anger versus sinful anger looks like. First, it's sinful anger aligns with what offends me. You offended me. You offended my family. You offended something that hits me. So I get angry about it. Righteous anger, although, on the other hand, righteous anger aligns with what offends God. There's a three-letter word. What is, what is it that offends God most? Any ideas? Sin. It, it aligns with, sinful anger aligns with what offends me and my preferences, but righteous anger aligns with what offends God. Here's another one. It festers inside us, sinful. Oh my goodness, it just bubbles and bubbles and bubbles for days and days and years and years, and the next thing you know, you haven't talked to your sibling in 15 years. And the next thing you know, your best friend from college. Haven't heard from him in months. Because I just don't have... He said this thing that was, I can never forgive him. It was a personal attack. And it festers and festers and festers. But righteous anger, on the other hand, grieves us. Ultimately, I think because it grieves God, but it grieves us. It's not festering, it's actually grieving. There's a clear difference there in my mind of, it's just boiling and boiling and boiling inside of me versus I feel the weight that there's something that actually has to be addressed. It's grieve. It's bringing grief upon me. Sinful anger erupts in recklessness, whereas righteous anger is expressed with managed restraint, and it's not opposed to self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, by the way. <laughs> Jesus was healing the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and all the religious leaders got real frustrated with him. It actually says he looked at them in anger. Anger itself is not bad. What he's telling us here, anger in itself is not the sin. How do you handle? How do you respond? What is the root of the anger? Again, what we believe determines how we behave, but in the middle there, it's our emotions. Our thoughts lead to our emotions. So as we're wrestling with this, and when we are looking at the way we are behaving and the, what we are actually believing, it comes from these foundational thoughts expressed with managed restraint, not opposed to self-control. So there's how I see the breakdown. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. If it is bubbly and erupting and it's just festering inside you, how likely is it that you're going to 
reconciled before the sun goes down. From my experience, not very. Maybe some of you are better than I. But from my experience, it doesn't end that way. It doesn't, it doesn't work out very well because I have no self-control when it's this sinful anger. But when it's righteous anger and there's actually something that needs to be addressed for the glory of God and for the joy of my brother and myself, it grieves me and I can trust. I can put my trust in the Lord and experience more joy in what God has for me than when I'm just bubbling over and just boiling. So what's his basis? Don't give an opportunity to the devil. Again, I think this is one of the reasons why this is one of our biggest stereotypes is that we're just angry people. And it's because we oftentimes, it just, it, it consumes us. Anger is so difficult to reconcile and deal with so many times, so often. But Paul takes it seriously saying, hey, when you are dividing your community, when lying and anger is permeating your community, it's giving room for the devil. I don't think he's saying indwelling us individually, but he's, he's saying it's giving a foothold, it's opening space for the devil to come and just be more and more divisive. A small schism turns into a bigger schism. Satan gets his footholds and spreads it more and more and more until we have church splits. Until we have people arguing and streaming at each other. Which I'm extremely thankful did not happen last week at the annual meeting. That was a, that was a good time. Um, my understanding is that in past years, sometimes it's not as clean as it was. But I'm honored that you guys trusted one another to not be standing up and yelling across the room at each other. That was a fun time. Don't give any opportunity to the devil. He continues on, our, righteous is, our anger is righteous, not sinful. We don't give the devil a foothold in our community. We trust one another. We speak truth to one another. We enjoy each other's presence. And we don't give Satan a foothold. Here's the third thing Paul says. Our hands are for generosity, not for stealing. Where is it in the text? 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands. Now, there's some discrepancy on, again, was this a specific issue in the community? The church at Ephesus was actually stealing stuff. Uh, were they not? Was it just a generic, hey, these are important principles to live by? We don't, we don't really have a clear idea. But at the end of the day, for us, it makes a lot of sense to apply it as a general principle of, Grand Theft Auto is not a great thing. You know, maybe you're part of the bank heist circuit that's going around. I don't know. Um, I follow your Belinda Buzz, and it feels like, man, every couple weekends, some new shop is getting broken into. That's not for us. That's not for us to be participating in. Paul says, oh, man, do not, do not be participating in that. But here's the reality. I think most of us, my, my hunch is that most of us are not participating in car thefts. We're not the ones breaking into Blue Scoop. We're not the ones uh, stealing, pickpocketing, that kind of thing. But there are other ways in which I think we can steal. This is a picture of, uh, we had a little family party for Ellie um, on her second birthday. And uh, there was a local coffee shop. I will not tell you which one, but there was a local coffee shop. And uh, I put an order in a week ahead of time for some travelers. And uh, a couple days before I went in and said, hey, just making sure it's all good. The day before I was there, I said, hey, just making sure it's all good. And then that morning I called to make sure it was all good. I arrived at the appropriate time to pick up my travelers and they were not ready and they were not even close to being ready. So they said, go ahead and grab a seat. And so I grabbed a seat 
And for about 30 or 35 minutes, they then brewed the coffee. And uh, I'm worried, I'm, oh, we're going to be late. I don't know if I'm going to make it on time. I'm going to be the last one to, to my family uh, party for Ellie. And at the end of it, they just handed me the travelers and said, all right, see you Monday. I hadn't paid yet. I'm not going to tell you exactly what happened. Hopefully you can fill in the gap with trust here, but I'm not, I don't want to be the hero of my own story. But, but I had the opportunity. Do I take the travelers and walk? When I get a check in the mail that is addressed to someone else, or even something like this, maybe not it's a check, but uh, this is an AI-generated image of Amazon package. It's all funky looking. That's how you know it's AI. But an Amazon package arrives at your door. You cut it open and say, whoa, this is not what I ordered. This is even better than I ordered. How do we handle it? I got a birthday card one time. It had $5 in it. It was not for me. It was addressed to my house, my address. I have no idea who it was. So I ended up trying to call the grandma and say, hey, I looked them up and I, I got no information back. And so what do you do? How hard do you push it to get the $5 to grandson Jonathan when it arrived at your house? How, how much effort do you go through when, ooh, I can just take this Amazon box into my own home and no one will know that I just got something far better than I just ordered? What does it look like for us? What are the temptations that he's trying to get us to unpack here? Because it's not, it's, at the end of the day, it's not the stealing itself that he's worried about. It's the approach of, I want more. I need more to be satisfied because I'm not trusting that God is going to provide for me what, I, what he thinks is best for me when he thinks is best. Again, I don't think we're stealing cars out here, but there are a lot of ways that we can dive into it. Let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have. It's easy to look at that and say, <laughs> without finishing the sentence, work hard so you can have. Don't steal. We get that. I think it's a lot of it doesn't take a lot of wrestling with you guys to say, no, stealing is bad. But notice he doesn't go to the Ten Commandments here. He doesn't appeal to the Ten Commandments, which he easily could have done. A guy who knows it inside and out, Paul could have easily appealed to, thou shalt not steal. Duh. That's why you shouldn't steal. He's saying, instead, do honest work so that you may have, not just have for yourself, but have something to share with anyone in need. It's not just work hard so that you can have stuff for yourself. There's a guy named John Piper. If you've been around here for a little while, you are probably familiar with that name. And here's a quote from what he says about this, this text in particular. Don't steal, but rather work so you can be generous. He says this, this is utterly revolutionary. You see what it does? It takes the whole of your life, including your secular job, and turns it into a work of grace. Paul wants you to think of your secular job as a means to display God's grace. No more stealing in the service of illegal greed. No more working in the service of legal greed. But now everything is done in the service of grace, not greed. Don't steal to have. Don't even work to have. But work to have in order to give. We steal to have because we don't have something. Or we work to have. And that's often celebrated. But Paul's argument here, work for generosity's sake. And what Piper picks up and says pretty appropriately, we work for the sake of generosity. So we can be generous to those around us. 
Our hands are for generosity, not for stealing. Why? What is the basis Paul gives so that we can reflect God's generosity? We can reflect God's generous, gracious heart to those around us in our community of faith and beyond. Next point. Our mouths are for speaking grace, not corruption. It says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. And verse 30 is a pretty interesting phrase or little sentence here he gives us. Verse 30 says, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. There's our basis. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. Spent quite a while trying to figure out what on earth does this line connect to? Stop doing this, start doing this. He just come out, came out of this, put off the old self, put on the new self. He's given us the real nitty-gritty about stop lying, put off lying, put on truth, put off this, put on that. goes back and forth, and this one just kind of came out of nowhere. I was trying to figure out where does it even fit in this passage? And I think what he's doing is actually making an appeal to what he just said before with the conjunction and. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? I'm linking up for it, words and phrases and clauses. He's linking it to... What are we to do? Our mouths are for speaking grace, not for grieving the Spirit. When we behave in these ways, the the virtues and the vices that Paul is giving us here, the virtuous things that he's saying put on and the vices that he's saying take off or put off or stop doing, these virtues and the vices he's saying as we cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, who has sealed us. He sealed us before when we came to faith. He sealed us for the day of redemption where we get to realize that faith and see God face to face, see Jesus face to face, and enjoy him for eternity. In that gap, while we are being sanctified, OST, ongoing spiritual transformation, Johnny mentioned earlier, we cooperate with the Spirit a lot of the time. Sometimes we buy into the vices a little more than we pursue the virtues. Sometimes we tempt ourselves and say these vices will actually deliver more happiness than these virtues. And I think what he's saying here is, as we spew corruption, as we look into theft, as we look into sinful anger and we wrestle with that, as our our words are telling lies and we're just losing trust, losing trust, losing trust, he's saying we're actually grieving the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He doesn't say you're losing the Spirit. There are other denominations, other religions even, that will say when you are sinning, the Spirit completely leaves you. But under the new covenant, when Jesus came and reconciled us to him, again, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, we don't have to worry about the Spirit leaving us. But there's a very real sense where as we bind to vices instead of virtues, we grieve him. Because our goal is to be cooperating with the work that he's doing. Put off the old man, be renewed. The Spirit is renewing our life into a new creation, put on the new self. There are moments where we say, not not right now. Not today. Maybe in a few days I'd be happy to. Don't grieve the Spirit. We cooperate with the work because we've been sealed. Understanding chapters 1, 2, and 3 is foundational. Rather than, hey, don't go make the Spirit angry, you've been chosen and loved and adopted 
and made completely new by God. And he wants to give you the best gifts. We cooperate with him. Last one, we're kind and not vicious. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and, mal- and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Comes back to what we say. Comes back to our mouth again and how destructive and deceitful the mouth can be in the way we spread malice and anger. He said, be angry and don't sin. Now he says, put off that sinful anger. There's no room for that in the church of Christ. There's no room for that in the body of Jesus. There's no room for that in a community of people who love one another and are mutually working out with each other as we each individually are cooperating with the Spirit, as we're collectively cooperating in the Spirit's regeneration in our lives, as it's giving us this new identity and we're working it out because we believe what he has said about us already. As we're doing that collectively and together, words are important. Words matter. And what's the basis for being kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving to one another? Actually, it's really funny. This is, uh, there's, there's no room for this in a sermon, but it's really funny that tenderhearted literally means um, healthy bowels. <laughs> like, that's funny. You have a good gut biome? Have good gut biome. Paul said it. But, uh, but it, it's, it's that overwhelming, just like, I feel good towards other people. I feel good. My, my gut is healthy towards others. It's this inner core, the inner being of me. I am just overflowing with this tenderhearted kindness, forgiving one another. God is so, so kind to us. He is so, so tenderhearted to us. And so we reflect it to others because God in Christ forgave us. That's a basis yet again. We're kind, not vicious. So I said earlier that hurt people hurt people. A couple weeks back, Todd shared the line that loved people love people. When you've been transformed by the love of God, Again, when you understand Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 about what God has done for you and you believe it and it changes what you're believing and you say there's nothing better than understanding this and thinking more about this, it changes the way we behave. Loved people love people. People who have been loved most are the ones who can then love the most. We reflect God's forgiveness to those around us because God is so, so good. Because we have been so so loved by a kind, tender-hearted, loving God. <clears throat> I think sometimes we get stuck on the behavior part. I'm so thankful for the first half of Ephesians that he gave us so that we don't jump straight to the behavior and say, I need to change behaviors. I need to change the way I act. It is not a behavior modification gospel. It's trusting and believing that God is so much better than anything else we could ever imagine. It's trusting that he is the ultimate source of our joy. That there's nothing better than loving and enjoying him. And believing that will change the way we behave to one another. So friends, if we are looking at this list and we struggle with lying, we struggle with stealing at any capacity of it, we struggle with all the list of the five vices that he gave us. If, we, if we're looking at these vices and saying, I cannot overcome them, I can't behave differently, friends, it's not a vice behavior issue, it's a belief issue. So my challenge is, think about how much you believe chapters one, two, and three. 
when we continue to wrestle with these things in our lives, these vices, and the vices are overpowering the virtues, we think back, do I believe this or am I just trying to behave better? God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this warning that Paul gives us, this, this example Paul gives us, full of commands, full of uh, uh, command language. But God, thank you for the beginning where Paul explained overwhelmingly how loved we are by you so that out of that love we can then live out of the belief that you actually are better than anything else and that we are truly truly loved by you we can behave in a way that brings glory to you and restoration to our communities god help us trust that you are better than anything else god remind us this week as we move forward remind us that we are so blessed so that you're so, that we in your sovereign decision we are so so blessed to be known and loved by you and to have this new creation god as we pursue putting off the old self and putting on the new self because of who we are don't let us get lost in behavior modification god help us trust you to do the work and help us cooperate we pray this all for your glory and for your glory and for our joy Amen.